0: Morning church, if you have a copy of God's word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter eight this morning. Psalm chapter eight this morning. If I say the name Jason Bourne, Jason. Born. Many of you would know who I'm talking about. Not everyone maybe knows who I'm talking about, but for those of you that don't know who I'm talking about, he's a character in Robert Ludlum's uh, uh, novel series. He is played in the cinematic version of this by Matt Damon. And the premise of his character is that he's this highly trained, skilled military personnel that has amnesia. And so much of his narrative is asking the question and trying to discern the answer, who am I? You might be familiar with Jason Bourne. I doubt you're familiar with Ansel Bourne. In fact, I'm sure you're not. Ansel Bourne was a 19th century evangelical preacher from Rhode Island who woke up one morning and happened to be in Pennsylvania, 350 miles from his home, Ansel Bourne took on the name of, of Jay Crowder after this and and he forevermore became the first person to have a documented case of amnesia without any known injury nor disease. The thing that is interesting about ansel Bourne's story and Jason Bourne's story is that it highlights something that is central to, to many plot points of of novels and movies. I, I'm reading a novel by the Birmingham native who has died now named Walker Percy, the Second Coming. Thirty pages into the book, central plot point is is the forgetting of one's identity. Who am I? There's something illusory about identity. There's a reason why the Old Testament is is ripe with the references remember, remember where I have brought you from. We're all prone to forget. We might not be prone to physical amnesia in this room, but all of us are prone to a type of spiritual amnesia. We all need to be reminded, who am I? Who are we? In light of the biblical narrative. And aren't we thankful that when we open up God's Word in Psalm 8, there is no hesitation, there is no pause to answer with clarity this identity question. Who am I? Psalm 8. The Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who am I? Who are you? Well, from Psalm 8, we read in verses 1 through 4 that we are, I am created and cared for by the creator God. Who are you? You are cared for by the creator God. Notice with me in verses 1 through 4 that David, the author of this psalm, grounds our identity in the grandeur of God. That he wants us first not to look at ourselves nor to look in with some type of psychological introspection, but he wants us to look up at the grandeur of the canvas of his creation. And as we look around us and we look above us, so we begin to see who we are that we're cared for by this creator God. Notice the verb that is repeated two times in the first three verses. Do you see it? In verse one, we read, you have set your glory above the heavens. Do you see it in verse three? The moon and the stars which you have set in place. Now, the question is, how did God set his glory above the heavens? How did God set the moon and the stars in place? And do you notice how David answers that question, that he did this? He set his glory, he set the moon and the stars with the work of his Fingers, the work of his fingers. It's easy to skip over this. It's easy to move on past this little detail here. But a person that would hear the psalm for the first time, David certainly in that ancient Near Eastern world, there there was a sense in which that this was what was bold-faced. This is what was an exclamation point around the very narrative of creation because they were competing narratives for the creation story in David's day. In that ancient Near Eastern world, you would have Babylonian myths of creation that go like this. This is what they have in common, that you have all of these gods that were vying for power and supremacy, and they fought one another. And the God at the end that was left standing is the one who out of his supremacy and might created the universe and created the earth. So that creation story. It's a story of strength. It's a story of might. It's a story of a warrior and victor. And notice in comparison, notice in contrast that our God, who we see depicted in the canvas of creation, he created it all with the work of his fingers. So our God is an artist. The canvas of creation shows delicacy and it shows care and it shows intimacy. Anytime you drive downtown and you go to the Birmingham Art Museum and you see the lines that are drawn, you see the beauty of the colors, you see the intimacy of the artistic piece that is set before you, you realize that behind every sculpture is a sculptor, behind every painting is a painter. You see in the canvas of that artistic rendering a little bit about the artist. And so it is God has given to us in the canvas of his creation this beautiful display of his care and his intimacy. Never once, never once have I, have I gone to an, an art museum and I've seen this finished painting And thought to myself, oh, just by happenstance, it got here. Every painting demands a painter. Every sculpture demands a a sculptor. And for most of human history, that was something that we were united around, but in the last 150 years, so you can believe a another worldview, and that worldview is this, that everything that exists is accidental, everything that exists is random, everything that exists has no design nor rhyme scheme behind it. Richard Dawkins, the celebrated Oxford Biologist says it this way in stark honesty that the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. What Dawkins says. It's brutal in his honesty, but we must understand the implications of it. What Dawkins is saying is behind every rainbow is randomness behind every breathtaking sunset. Yesterday morning, a good friend of mine, we were we were running up Red Mountain and we got to that overlook at Red Mountain where you can see the the great sun rising before you as the day is starting and it takes your breath away in its beauty. But Dawkins tells us, and that kind of materialistic worldview tells us behind every breathtaking sunrise or sunset, it is simply an accident that the sound of a newborn baby enveloped by the cold of that hospital room as he or she takes their first breath, that it is all chance that every breath that we breathe, behind it there is no design. That's not what David believed. That's not what Psalm 8 tells us. Psalm 8 tells us that the canvas of creation cries out as a witness for the creator that is behind it. David, in verse 3, he tells us what many of you in this room can relate to. He looks up at the heavens in verse 3. And he says, when I look at the heavens, what the work of your fingers is this great artist, the moon and the stars that you have set in place. In any contrast, that this creator God is mindful of us, cares for us. Now, I know many of you, if not all of you, have Birmingham residences or Birmingham suburb residences here. But behind uh, uh, where we live now, many of us have, well, we, we know the sound of, of gravel under the, the wheels of coming home. Many, many of you grew up, and where I was from, we used to call it, my dad lived in the country. Anybody know what it's like to live in the country? And so in the country, on an August night, you could lay on your back and you could feel sort of the wetness of the ground before you. And you could look up and you would look up at the same thing that David looked up at. The grandeur of the stars that are before you. And in that moment, it is majestic as you don't have for miles around you, artificial light interfering with what on a cloudless night is indescribable. And you look up at that. This is what David is looking up at. This is what David didn't know. That when he looked up at the stars... That if you were to take our galaxy and if you made it proportional to the United States, you know what our earth is in proportion to the size of the galaxy? It would just be a quarter. David didn't know that. David didn't know that what he was looking up at was, was, was one galaxy, one universe, and there are, as astronomers tell us, maybe over a hundred billion other universes. What David didn't know was is that if you could hypothetically become Captain Kirk and you had all of the resources of, of, and wealth of humanity and you were able to commission the starship Enterprise and you had your own crew, you had your own Captain Spock, and you said, I just want to go to the neighboring universe, the neighboring galaxy here. You know how long that would take you if you were going at the speed of light? That would take you 25,000 light years. Just to get next door. And David says that that is before us is created with his fingers. You remember growing up singing? He's got the whole world in his. He's got the whole world in his. I thought y'all knew that song. Where am I pastoring here? Yeah. He's got the whole world in his hands. But it doesn't stop there. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. And this is what's amazing about this passage. Certainly, David wants us to be in awe of how great and how majestic our creator God is. But he wants us to see the contrast that how great he is in the canvas of creation does not eliminate the very fact that he cares for you. So the God who created the vastness of this creation, he knows the number of hairs on your head. That the God who created the vastness of this creation, he tells us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That the God who created the vastness of this creation is a God who knows you by name and loves you so much that he would send his son not only to live a perfect life but to die a saving death and you too can know him individually. There's nothing more demoralizing than to have a child maybe the age of nine, maybe the age of ten. And this happens, it happens with the best of intentions, but that child sees mom, dad gone so much or, or dad gone so much because of work duty and, and then that child says, you know something, mom doesn't care, never hear. Dad doesn't care, never hear. Probably nothing more demoralizing in the workplace to have a manager, to have a supervisor that is always gone, removed from the intricate details of the challenges in your workplace. And here David says, we have a God who is ultimately transcendent, but in his transcendence, he never delegates his care for you to anyone else other than himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That he is vast in his mighty and his power, but he is never removed from us. That where he will not come alongside of us and go before us and go with us. That even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we do not have to fear evil. For what? He is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. Psalm 8 and Paul, in 2 Corinthians, they're talking with each other. And in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the same David that would write these words are inspired by, by Paul, as he writes in 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by, by who? By God. If there's nothing that you go through, nothing that you face, nothing that you experience. There is nothing that surprises God in the intricate details of your life, that he is sovereign and he is good. And even this morning, as there's tragedy that is before us and that tragedy can be localized to your own life when there's a diagnosis that comes before you or despair or depression or even death that knocks on all of our doors, we need to be reminded that God doesn't outsource his comfort to anyone else other than himself. So be of good cheer. Be comforted that he is a God who loves you in the midst of the trials and difficulties that you might be facing even this morning. Even this morning. So who are you? Who am I? I'm created by God. More than created by God, I am cared for by the Creator God, and that leads us secondly to that beautiful image of verse five here in Psalm eight. That who am I? Who are you? Who are we? Who is all of humanity? Well, we are those that are created in the image of God. Verse five is a powerful verse that needs to be a verse, especially in our day and time today, that we need to be reminded of. Yet you have made him all of humanity a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Focus on the first five words of that verse. Yet you have made him. Psalm 8 and Genesis chapter 1 have one theme for us to be able to hold on to this morning. And that is that so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Psalm 8, Genesis chapter 1 is this resounding reminder to all of us. That every person, regardless of ethnicity, every person, regardless of class, every person, regardless of sex, every person, regardless of age, every person, regardless of religious profession, every person, regardless of their profession, that no matter what you've done, no matter what you are doing, you cannot eliminate this foundational fact that God has created you in His image, and He has crowned you with glory and honor. We show respect and kindness to those that we're engaged with because every person that we come in contact with has royal heritage as they're creating the image of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I remember, and maybe this is a phrase that has been eliminated, I I, I would be safe in saying it's probably not eliminated, but I, I remember that there was a time where you would hear somebody say, oh, he's a nobody. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Well, oh, she's just a nobody. Oftentimes, and when you're growing up in, in the pains of maybe middle school or in the pains of high school, he's a nobody means that he isn't running with the right crowd isn't in the right click. Unfortunately, you don't really graduate past this. Sometimes it can hit you right when you go into the workplace. Oh, he's just a nobody. Which which sort of means, well, they really didn't go to the right school. They don't really have the right connections. Just kind of blend in to the crowd. And do you hear in Psalm 8... The powerful reminder that every person, regardless of their class, regardless of their race, regardless of their profession, regardless of what political party they vote for, or what religion they profess, is a somebody. There is no person who is a nobody, because we're all somebody's created in his image, and there are conversations that you have. Like conversations that I have coming to be your pastor the last two years, there are often times where I'm in conversations with people, whether it's on the ball fields, whether it's here at church. Sometimes it's even in publics where somebody will see me talking to someone. They'll come up to me after the conversation and they'll say, did you know who that was? Did you know who that was? Well, I, I know the name. I know what they're doing professionally. I know know that they're married to this person. No, no, do you know who that was? And then oftentimes it's athletic achievements. Did you know that he played quarterback for and fill in the blank. Do, do you know that, that she is the CEO of and fill in the blank? Do you, do you know that at one time they were in fill in the blank? And, and it's always these powerful, wonderful stories of, of influence and wonderful stories of achievement. And they're, they're wonderful stories to celebrate. But what we need to be reminded is that every person that you encounter, as you're walking the dog through the neighborhood, every person you sit next to on these pews, Every person who will never darken the doors and sit on these pews. Every person who professes the name of Jesus and every person who doesn't profess the name of Jesus this side of heaven. Every person who talks just like you and every person who doesn't talk exactly like you. Every person who maybe looks like you or doesn't actually look like you, quote, unquote. Every person that we encounter, notice that behind that person, God is whispering in your ear, do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who that is? Do you know that I created them in my image? Do you know that I have crowned them with glory and honor? Do you know who that person is? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? For over 2,000 years, Jewish theologians, Christian theologians, they've parsed this, and there is something that is mysterious and yet beautiful about being created in the image of God. And I think only in heaven will we fully be able to see the richness of this image, but we have hints of it in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, we see the first glimpse of God speaking things into existence. The first image we have of God is God as a creator, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He creates with his voice. One of the first things that we see God telling Adam to do, he gives him responsibility, and Adam gets to create. He doesn't create out of nothing, but he creates names. That is a, I'm going to call it a draft. I'm going to call that a dog. I'm going to call that a cat. God gives Adam the ability to create names, and he names, he has responsibility. So being created in the image of God has in it a a level of creativity that God endows us to have. You put a monkey in front of a typewriter for thousands of years, and you know what you're never going to get? You're never going to get Shakespeare sonnets. You're not. Think of what humanity has been able to do, Not, not in the worst Summary of it, but think they're skyscrapers that are built and interstate systems that are designed. They're diseases that are conquered through vaccinations all through the creativity that is endowed by our creator. This is what God has given us, being created in his image. There's morality, not just creativity. There's morality. Romans 1 talks about the conscience that is embedded in us. There is a sense of right and wrong. Christian and non-Christian alike can think about El Paso. We can think about the difficulties that have occurred in Dayton. We can come together with a clear consensus that this is wrong. There's things that we as a society are able to say, right, wrong, right, wrong, yes, there are times where we disagree, but there's a sense of innate understanding of good and evil that transcends even Christianity. Why? Because we're created in the image of the ultimate arbiter of right and wrong, of goodness, God, morality, creativity, and even relationality. When was the time where God the Father was alone? Never. Never. There's always been the Father, always been the Son, always been the Holy Spirit. God has always been fulfilled. He did not create this world because he was lonely and he needed humanity to complete him. He was infinitely complete from eternity past. Eastern Orthodox, he talks about the perichoresis, the divine dance between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Father. And that's always occurred. The music of their love is the music that unites the Father and the Son together with the Spirit from eternity past to eternity future. And you are created with the capacity to love and be loved. You're created with the capacity to love God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself, but in every aspect of being created in the image of God, it is marred, it is blurred. We do not live in a Genesis 1, Genesis 2 world. We can create to harm. Our sense of morality is the sense that we fall short of. We, we fall short not only of God's standards, but we fall short of our own standards. Who among us will say, I have lived a holy, perfect life? Anyone? We fall short of our own standards. More importantly, we fall short of God's perfect standards. And even the relationality that God embeds in us, we spurn those that love us. And at times we run from the rescue of our infinite, lovingly loving God. And so in every aspect of the image of God, we see that that image is blurred. It is marred by sin. But here's the good news. This is how mindful God the Father is of you. This is how much he cares for you. That not only was that the design of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, but he would see fit in light of the fallenness of all of us that are in this room to send his son that did not consider equality with God something to be held onto and grasped. He left that perfect communion from eternity past to enter into our sin-soaked world and live a life where he wept. When he fell, the infinite Son of God, Jesus Christ, He bled. There's not a temptation that he does not understand, but he is perfect in every way. And so when Jesus came and lived a perfect life and fulfilled the requirements of the law, not only did he do that, but he died upon the cross Why did he do that? Because every sin that we have committed, every sin that we are committing and will commit in that moment was laid upon him. And the righteous wrath of God was satisfied upon his son who did not deserve what he received. And in that moment, in that moment, salvation forevermore was given a path. And that path has a name. And that name is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus came and he has lived the perfect image of what it means to be created in the image of God. And not only does he rescue us when we place our faith in him, but the story is this, that he desires to restore us. So while we live in a Genesis 3 world, that is not our final destination. That there is a powerful future ahead for all of us in this world and all of us that profess faith in Jesus Christ. All of us that are in this room who are Christians, that he desires to do what? He desires to restore us to that perfect image in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And until he does that, when we meet him in death, until he does that, when we meet him in the second coming, this we know, that every person that we meet, every person that we interact with, comes from a royal heritage and possesses intrinsic value and worth. So we treat people. We treat people online. We treat people in person. With dignity and respect, even when we disagree, even when we don't see eye to eye on things that are of vital importance. We understand that there is something that is greater, and that is that every person we come in contact is created in the image of God. And that God, our God, loves and cares for them. And he does that so much that he would send his son to die for them, just as he sent his son to die for you in our culture, we are pulled in every respect to ostracize those that are different from us, to marginalize those that are different from us, to compartmentalize people into segments and into groups based upon an infinite amount of things. Every part of our culture says separate and divide, separate and divide, separate and divide. And here is the chorus of Psalm 8 saying every person that we come in contact with comes from royal blood created in his image and deserves, even in our disagreement, deserves even when we don't see eye to eye on things that are vital to us. They deserve our love. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you this morning listening to the voice of your Holy Spirit in Psalm 8. A voice that speaks in the midst of a culture that is fractured. We don't have to look far to realize that this is not the world in which you intended. That Genesis 3 is all around us. As we turn on the television in the mornings, we see mothers and fathers weeping over the tragic and what seems to be senseless loss of life in every way. And, and we cannot understand the wise to all that we observe around us, but we know who. We, we know who you are and who you've created us to be. We know who you sent your son to rescue us from our fallen state. We know who you desire for us to be as followers of Jesus. We know who you've called us to love, every person that we come in contact with, to to love even those who persecute us, even those who we would, call enemies. There is a greater voice than the voice of our culture. And that voice is the voice of your Holy Spirit. It's a voice that we submit to this morning as your followers in this fractured world that we see not only all around us, but even inside every one of us. Thank you that you would see us in our brokenness and love us enough for us, to be mindful of us, and our desperate need for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in your name, the name of Jesus, that we pray.